Welcome to the Irrelevant Podcast. I'm Nathan Jones with my co-host Alex Lewis. And today on episode 16, we have a special guest with us, Mr. Michael Fahey. Um, for those of you who don't know, the creator of the West Side vs. the World documentary, the director of the West Side vs. World doc- documentary. Michael, thanks for uh, taking time out of your day down there in the bright, sunshiny state of Florida to come talk to us on this Irrelevant Podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks for y'all switching up your schedule. That was. Yeah. Alex, uh, he said, I sent him a text last night and I was like, what time is, what's, what time is Fahey coming on? And he was like eight 30 your time. And I was like, yeah, okay. All right. That's a little earlier than I expected, but, uh, but we're here and we're glad to have you. We're just glad that you took some time out of your day. So, um, for those who have no clue and, or just turn a blind eye to what the West side world is, can you just kind of give a brief introduction about who you are in general and kind of what your background is and um, what you've brought to the strength and conditioning world for us? All right. Um, I'm a simple man with strange interests <laughs> that have led me to a, a kind of a weird history. Um, I was an athlete when I was younger. Um, I just sort of circumstantially through my father and his interests came to know about powerlifting and, and West Side Barbell. Um, for some reason, I had this like light bulb moment when I was a senior in high school, uh, shortly before signing day for football, um, where I said, I want to make movies. And so, you know, six foot three, 243 pounds with some D1 offers. Um I decided instead I was going to try and do film school. Went to Florida State. Um, again, we talked about Florida earlier. Uh, went to Florida State, which is a public university. And um, I was in one of the most prestigious film schools in the country. Uh, there, very small program, very uh, well-regarded, uh, best program in the Southeast by far super stoked to be there um you know again had turned down the opportunity to be a d1 college football player or you know half a dozen ivies had you know wanted me and instead i chose to do film school where uh they passed a budget that slashed the uh funding for the arts that was that was a big thing at the time was take away all the art money and uh, so as a result, Florida State had to kick a bunch of kids out of the program. And I was one of them. The real fun part about that story is that the person who wrote my recommendation was Jeb Bush, who happened to be the governor who signed that uh, that budget. Um, it, <laughs> that was his uh, his final fiscal budget. Um, years later, in, in like 2017 or 20, in 2018, 2018, because I just finished West Side versus the World. I ended up uh, getting an offer to go shoot something with Jeb. And um, despite the pay not being good, I, I went specifically so that I could give him shit in person for, uh, you know, helping me get into film school and change the course of my life. And then immediately slashing the budget for that film school. It was a real cool move. Uh, he apologized profusely. It didn't really matter because I just switched over into another program um, I'm a pretty adaptable person and I have uh, developed a healthy disdain for the uh, trappings of like certifications and 
sort of awards and and things that uh, elevate one's status beyond what they can, you know, simply just what they can do and what they can't. Um, so I just switched over to communications, ended up doing the exact same thing, but working with very cheap digital equipment, which as it turns out, I graduated college in 2009, um, top of my class, literally number one, got an award, got a plaque, all that stuff. Um, despite not being like a good student with, you know, good study habits and whatnot, I just really loved what I was doing. Um, Immediately went out to LA in the middle of a recession as everyone's losing their jobs and studios are cutting, uh, cutting their budgets as well. And film, which turned out to be very expensive, was being replaced simultaneously, just kind of everywhere you looked, by digital uh, media. And so all of a sudden, this thing that had been, you know, uh, everyone else had kind of looked at as a loss, you know, that I got kicked out of my major uh, and swept into this like very um, under the rug, non-glamorous sort of like step cousin of that same major. I end up in LA and immediately it was, you know, I was like super employable because if you wanted to do something on a shoestring budget, I knew how to do that. If you had nice equipment, I had no idea how to use it. But as it turned out, everyone was selling their nice equipment, and trying to cut their budgets. And, and so I, I turned an L into a W real fast. Um, ended up getting a gig editing what I thought was going to be a colossal failure because I was 22 and they had given me the keys to edit a feature length movie. And I didn't think that I was an editor. Um, I thought that I was going to you know train to be a writer and a director. Um, wasn't even interested in documentaries, but ended up editing a, a movie called Forks Over Knives. Um, that ended up being super successful, literally one of the most watched documentaries in history, probably still the most watched documentary in the history of Netflix. Um, until Netflix started doing their own programming, it, it for a good four or five year run, it dominated, it dominated their viewership. Um, so when you look at like, veganism and plant-based diet sort of abroad and in the last you know 10 to 12 years the surge and and surge to prominence that that had um oddly enough i'm one of the individuals principally responsible for that um i am now uh 280 pounds and not like the most you know healthy sort of person in the world um there's no sugar in this, but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, um, I always kind of leaned on the things that most people, I think, try and lean away from the things that like make them, them, you know, like we all, um, uh, again, going sort of back to some of the things that I said before this about everyone hates where they came from. I love where I came from. Um, I moved to LA after I got out of college, um, met a girl, figured out how to get financing for my own projects, immediately moved back to Florida. Um, ended up in Orlando for a couple of years and then moved now back up to Tallahassee. I love it here, um, but I've traveled all over the world, all over the country, I've, you know, especially a lot to like small towns and stuff. Um, 
you know, every place is the same. People everywhere are the exact same. Nowhere is special. Nowhere is more fun or more exciting or less exciting. Anywhere that you aren't just inherently seems like it's better than it is. And wherever you are, you become just too desensitized to it. Um, and the same goes with, you know, the stories that we tell about ourselves, um, the way that we, you know, market and brand our businesses and stuff. When you, you know, if you look at Twitter or you look at wherever, um, the people who succeed in life are, there's a reason why uh, sociopaths and narcissists do so well. And it's because they're just not afraid to like tell their own story and kind of be enamored with the, you know, the, the small details of their own existence. Um, whereas most of the rest of us, because uh, I'm, I'm fairly certain that I'm neither a sociopath or, or a narcissist, um, though I can appear as either at any time. Um, but for the rest of us, you know, that imposter syndrome it tends to set in and causes us to overlook all the things about ourselves that make ourselves special or unique or interesting. Um, but so I got some guidance very early on, both from like parents and, and people around me when I was young, and then from professors and stuff when I was in college who said literally, you know, like, lean into lean into your backstory you know you work in production and you're a former athlete that is rare you know most people are going to go oh i don't want to highlight that side of myself because it makes me stand out in the crowd and might draw ire or criticism and he's like but just from an economic perspective lean into that because suddenly now you know, you're not going to, you're never going to be the best at what you do, but you're going to be the only person that does what you do from where you are from. And that's what makes you, you know, that is what will make you regardless of industry. That's what will make you uniquely marketable is your story of wherever you came from. So taking that to heart, I, you know, I, had told a bunch of people stories about my past and being an athlete and stuff. And that was always like sort of an icebreaker, you know, cause again, I'm, I'm six foot three and about 280, 285 pounds right now. When I lived in LA, I was considerably smaller weight wise. I was the same height. I, I still, you know, 200 to maybe, you know, anywhere from like 190 to 220, depending on what season or what year or what, you know, whether I was into kettlebells at the time or barefoot running or whatever I was doing compared to most people who worked in what I worked in, I was a giant. So it would always come up like, oh, you must have played sports. Oh, you must have played football. Oh, you must have done this. You must have done that. And then I'd always wear a West Side hoodie and people would go, you know, that's the guy who who has a, you know, a hoodie that has balls on it. Um, so I get a lot of questions about that. And literally from just telling people, stories about like my life and where I came from somebody you know a, a woman that I worked with who was from the opposite end of the spectrum had no business kind of being interested in any of that stuff she called me up and was like you know hey I'm I'm an executive now at a reality company looking for show concepts and everyone at the time this is you know probably about 10 years ago there was a big push to try and find reality content that men could attach themselves to and get into that's why you see like so many you know like that's all discovery became basically was you know dudes with beards in alaska 
dudes with beards on boats, dudes with beards, you know, like uh, trying to find gold and arguing in the forest and, you know, being overweight on a tractor, things like that. Um, that all came from the same movement of like, how do we grab the most valuable demographic of, you know, 18 to 34 year olds and the second most valuable demographic of like 34 to 50, whatever. Um, and, uh, so this woman was like, everything that networks are asking me to try and find, I just keep thinking about that story that you told me about this crazy old troll man who, you know, yelled at these wild and rambunctious and, you know, occasionally criminal power lifters. Um, and so they wanted me to develop a dot or a reality show on West Side Barbell and they wanted to pay me. And it, it sounded like, you know, it was a sweet gig with one major flaw to it which was louis simmons uh who i didn't like know at the time my dad knew him i had met him before but like he didn't you know he didn't know who i was he he still would be hard pressed to well obviously now he wouldn't be able to answer you but to you know his dying day he he probably wouldn't have been able to tell you my last name and you know i followed the man literally for years but uh yeah so that turned into me going you know reverse engineering just the way that my mind works if you tell me if you tell me something i'm immediately going to look for what are the holes in it where will it you know where's the where's this mechanism going to fail you know I'm, i stress test the concept like in instantly and if you tell me why i can't do something i immediately go well let's solve those problems which is probably why i like training now because it's just like a very rapid process of constantly just addressing and solving for, for problems. But uh, I, I started thinking about it and I was like, well, you can't make a reality show about West side because reality is, or shows have to be tied into very rigid schedules. And with someone like Louie, who was uh, quirky to put it like very nicely, um, time and sketch like he moved he moved at his own pace and his pace was going to change specifically so that he could always feel in a position of like power over the situation you know if things were all going according to plan louis the type of person who was going to throw you know a wrench into the spokes simply so that he could feel in control of the whole thing um which at times, you know, creates brilliance and at times is just maddening, you know, bullshit to deal with. Um, but so, yeah, I, I thought, you know, well, I could do this as a documentary and then story I've told a hundred times in 12 seconds, he shot me down. It took months of these progressively longer phone calls to get him to agree to do it. Um, but he ends up sort of begrudgingly agreeing um, simply because I kind of challenge him on the fact that he wanted to keep calling me, but didn't want to do the movie. And I was like, you know, Louie, let's both acknowledge like, this is bullshit. You want to do this because you want to keep talking to me. Like, that's the only reason you would talk to me. So let's just go ahead, you know, say that I made you do it or whatever. And, and let's just work from there. Um, 
And then what I thought would be like a two-year process turned into like a four, almost five-year process. Movie comes out. Um, I do like a speaking tour and, and do screenings all over the country, across the U.S., across Canada, um, across Australia, which was really cool. Uh, so I'm I'm going all over the place and enjoying sort of just the movie being out and the spoils of people wanting to talk to me about it and an increasing number of people wanting to ask me questions about training because people didn't really understand that, you know, like I didn't work for Westside, you know, like the, the whole structure of that industry, uh, how it works kind of befuddles people. So everyone thought, you know, I was a relatively young guy, you know, I was in my early thirties at that point. Um, so everyone thought that there must be some apparatus that was behind me that was funding it. And they're sending me out to do all this. And I was like, no, I'm just a crazy person who it has never had a, you know, quote unquote, real job, except for an eight week stint working at a part-time at a bookstore in college. Um, so I was like, you know, I, I live in a fantasy world of my own sort of building and um, I have chosen to load up this Hyundai accent with speakers and uh, projectors and, and roll up to gyms across the country and do this. Um, but lots of coaches started talking to me because at simultaneously at the same time, Louis, you know, was getting older. His health is uh, at that point, I think, starting to to slip a little and and, you know, he was becoming just progressively harder and harder to reach directly and uh so i started getting a a a fairly wide array of people who were talking to me because they're like you know you were you were there like you you i had hundreds of hours of video i was there for hundreds of hours beyond that i had you know hundreds of hours of interviews that aren't in the movie and have nothing to do with the movie you know i've 20 hours of Louie talking about training concepts that had no, you know, value to the story. But, uh, so I had gotten this like very informal, unorthodox education in all this stuff. And then somebody, you know, approached me when I moved back to Tallahassee, kind of settled down. Somebody approached me and said, you know, Hey, there's a high school that's really struggling. Would you want to work with them? Happened to me, my old alma mater. Um, which was a very good uh, program, you know, for it's been around for like 110 years. And for the first 90 years, this, this school was incredible at, at football, especially. Um, and then just fell off of a cliff and completely, you know, turned into something radically different. So I didn't know if I would like it or I didn't know what I'd want to do. I show up. Um, and after my first day, I thought I probably don't want to come back for a second day. Um, and after my fourth day, I told my wife, I was like, somehow I want to figure out a way that I can do more of this. And of course I'm in Florida, contrary to that. I just talked to somebody last night about this, Florida as a state with a super low tax rate, um, that, you know, is appealing and draws a lot of people in the sort of flip side of that is Florida has some of the worst funding for teachers and coaches because our coaching funding is scaled off of how much our teachers make. Um, 
so not intending for any of that to be political. It's just that is the factual landscape of the state. Um, so if you're at a private school, you know, hey, maybe the private school wants to pay well for strength coaches, but there's not a whole lot of those. There's very, very few of those. Most schools are public. Um, and basically that means like if you want to be a coach at a Florida school, um, you make basically no money. Uh, so I was a volunteer, you know, I, I get stipend offers, which I've told every school, like just keep, uh, because they're like $800 a semester and there's no summer stipend. So, you know, uh, it, it ain't all good out here for people thinking like, Oh, I'll, I'll get my CSCS and move to Florida and coach at a high school. You're going to work another job so that you can afford to be the coach. It's just how it is. Luckily for me, I had made a movie and I get checks in the mail. So um, I had the ability to do that. And I started restructuring everything else in my business to allow me to do that more and more because making documentaries and telling stories and making movies is a multi-year pro uh, process. Um, but, you know, in like three, four weeks, I can do some pretty cool things in terms of making an athlete stronger, faster, and then that athlete is like a live, real life living thing that gets a scholarship offer or simply does better in their sport or simply feels more confident as a human being. And you get that like very quick return on uh, gratification and, and fulfillment of like, wow, I actually just helped somebody versus when you make a movie after a while, you feel insane and you feel incredibly selfish about, you know, like I made that, but does anyone care? And did I make like, did I make anything better at all? And eventually it comes out and hopefully if you're, you know, good enough, the movie does do something and usually it's something unexpected and, you know, someone goes like, oh, that inspired me to do this other thing and you feel good, but you have to wait like five, six years for that to happen. Um, and in that same period of time, you could have trained a thousand athletes and had that same happiness a thousand times over. So. That's what I do now. I coach. Feel free to uh, cut me off at any point because <laughs> I'll forget that I'm talking or why I'm talking. It, it's not going to hurt our feelings if you continue to talk by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I was going to ask, you said that you had like multiple or did you had division one offers to play football and you kind of had this moment where you're like, I'm just going to pass on the the football thing and go and into the the creative side of things what was that just kind of an epiphany moment or had you kind of built up towards that or kind of what led you to making that decision ultimately that you made that jump or that leap um a couple things like number one i think i was one of the most important factors was i wasn't good at football um and that I don't really put like on me. Um, I think that most coaching is not very good. Um, most coaching is concerned with like the wrong things. So I was, you know, I could memorize anything you gave me, um, but I didn't have, you know, so I knew the entire playbook. I knew every position I could, you know, go up on the whiteboard. I could draw up everything, but 
I had very little connection to like what any of that meant on the field. I would be where I was supposed to be, but the game was so much harder for me um, because I didn't really understand, you know, like I didn't understand things like leverages because no one on my team understood them because they weren't coached. You know, our coaches probably didn't understand them because their coaches didn't coach them. Years later, when I was working at the NFL network, um, you know, and I would I would get to sit in on meetings and get to talk to, you know, I'd literally be in the room with, say, like uh, Steve Mariucci as he's going over, you know, breaking down a quarterback's college film for the draft. And as he's, you know, explaining to the producer his notes on what he's going to talk about, you know, we'd. I end up in a conversation about like, you know, oh, what do you mean? So how do you read this? What are you, what cues are you looking for? And you just realize like all of a sudden you see someone who's actually a high level coach and you go like, oh, holy shit, you know how all of this works and you can explain it to like in five minutes. I was like, why didn't anyone ever take those five minutes with me when I was like, I don't know, in seventh grade would have made the rest of my football career so much better. Instead, you know, the, the kids who get rewarded in, in, and this is for like all sports, the kids who get rewarded so often are the kids who discovered that stuff on their own somehow, just through pure circumstance. And so, you know, we call them naturals and stuff. No one is a natural at anything. No one is naturally talented at any, any, you know, slice of human existence. It's all you know, maybe you have some genetic ability that makes you a little predisposed, but at some point you have to be actually exposed to the information, exposed to the movement. So the sport was, was not something that came supernaturally to me. I loved it. I love the ability to, you know, get out there and like hit somebody and, and be physical and rough. But, um, I would, you know, I was the classic type of player who would, you know, play a little slower than I was because I was thinking, you know, and the reality was just like, I'm, I'm trying to see what the fuck is unfolding in front of me. And it takes a long time because no one's told me what, like the pre-snap kind of cues that I could be looking for. No one's, no one has explained to me, you know, like what kind of offense the team we're playing runs, what they're trying to set us up to do we knew nothing about tendencies or any of that. We would know, you know, on scout team that they ran this formation and they'd run this play, but there was never even a, a, an attempt to give us any sort of like situational awareness in terms of like, in this situation, you will be more likely to see this. When you see this, this is what they're trying to cause you to do so that they can do this behind you. Everything was taught sort of in such a modular, you know, fashion um, and as I'm describing this, this is why you can tell, like, you know, I, I was on teams that went like one and nine, you know, um, I was also on teams that went eight and three with the exact same coaches, but just a bunch of stud players, you know, where we're like, cool, we're going to just line up and run fullback dive at you all day long. We have no blocking, you know, rules. We have no gap assignments. We're just going to be bigger. You know, we just have offensive tackles who averaged 340 pounds and six foot seven, you know, that was literally 
our tackles were six, five and six, 10 and three twenty and 400. Um, and both were D one tackles, uh, first team, all state fullback, things like that. So it was just like, we're just going to be so talented that it doesn't matter. And then when the next class happens not to be that talented, they're not going to have the same kind of success. Um, but they're going to have the same coaches and they're going to have the same philosophy. Um, but so anyways, just the realization that like, I wasn't, I wasn't exposed to good coaching. So the sport didn't entirely make sense to me along with not being exposed to good coaching. My coaches never explained, never even attempted to explain the recruiting process to us. So I got, I got a very big D one offer that, you know, I would have taken, and it's insane that I didn't take it. Um, Cause it was, it was a very, you know, it was a big 10 school and I got an offer and it was like two weeks before signing day. And this is the early 2000s signing day is in, is in like February. And I I'm a senior. I've had a few offers at this point. Um, I was told, you know, be brutally honest with these coaches when they offer you, uh, you know, if you're not interested, tell them you're not interested. Terrible advice. So literally, you know, first time a coach called me and said, hey, you know, I'm coach so-and-so. I still remember this coach's name. I cannot believe that I was I was told by adults that this is how I should handle this situation. Um, it was like June 1st, my going into my senior year. It's right when everyone should be getting their offers. You know, I don't even have a profile on rivals at this point, which that was new. You know, rivals like wasn't a thing really when I was a freshman. And by the time I was a senior, like everyone, you know, you wanted a rivals profile. Um, but this coach calls me and it's the first time a coach has said, we want you to come play for us. We want to extend you a scholarship. And I said to him immediately, like, you know, oh, thank you. But I'm only looking to sign at, you know, either academically prestigious institutions or, you know, power five uh, colleges. And this was like an FCS level school. Uh, I, I also like, I wasn't going to combines. I wasn't going to camps. So there was, there was no way that any of these power five schools were ever going to find me. I wasn't, you know, and at the time there's no huddle, you know, it was just like, I was like, well, surely they know, you know, someone will send up the bat signal and they'll just know like, well, he's, you know, he's, he's the size of an NFL middle linebacker. You know, he's, he's the same size basically as Brian Erlacher, you know, like come on down. You'll want him. He can run, you know, 21 miles per hour. You know, that somehow just mystically in the sky, this information surely was being transmitted. And of course my same coaches weren't like, you know, again, we're in Florida, coaches are underpaid. They're not sending out giant thick VHS tapes, you know, and spending up the, the, you know, athletic department budget, sending out thousands of VHS tapes. So it's just completely different landscape. Um, I wasn't proactive at all in my recruiting, but, uh, now being an older person and seeing kind of how everything works, uh, anyways, this Big Ten school came to me like two weeks before signing day and they offer me and I was like, 
cool. Let's set it up. You know, like I'm super excited. I'm, I, and you know, here's when our signing day is here's, here's what time we're going to be scheduled for. And they were like, Oh no, 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 no. We're already full for this year. We heard that you were looking at doing a, a postgraduate year because my fallback was, you know, well, I'll just go to Cornell and play tight end there. Um, but uh, I had a 3.0, you know, and a 1320 SAT, which I thought were good. You know, it, again, it, people get angry with me when I say things like none of your kids are strong. You know, I also say things like none of your kids are smart. I, I still, you know, for years after I graduated, I would go back and guest lecture uh, at FSU. And I would say, you know, I would say to classes full of students, none of you are talented. You know, anything that you think that you are right at this moment that you're like very proud of, you're like on the doorstep. You know, like you're not, if you think that you are at an elevated level, then you inherently also think that there's not much above it that you can get to. So you, you, you know, stunt your own growth and progress. If you're, if you ever think that you're at the end, congrats, you are at the end. You won't go any further. Um, so I was like, you know, Hey, I'm an honor roll kid. I got, you know, a cool tassel for it and stuff. Like, uh, you know, I don't get grounded, you know, I get it. We had six classes at the time. I'd be like, I get two A's. I get two C's and I get two B's 3.0. I'm good. I'm in the clear. And it's like looking back as like, no, I should have got my ass chewed out for the two C's because as it turns out, like it takes like two to 3% more effort to get the A, you know, and I could have been like, Hey, I've got five A's and a B. And then I would have been able to go play football at Cornell without having to take a gray shirt year and go to, uh, you know, Hargraves Military Academy, which was what I was looking at. Um, but so anyways, a power five school, they, you know, they offer me, I'm like, hell yeah, let's do it. And they're like, no, 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 no. This is an offer assuming that you're going to reclassify. And I was like, you know, well, what is you want me to wait? I have grades to get into your school. I could get into your school just like if I sent in an application. I don't need any help getting in there. I need the the postgrad in order to go to an Ivy League. And my dad had played at Princeton. So that was where that whole dream came from. Um, but uh, so I was just like very jaded from all of it. Now, you know, 36-year-old adult Michael would have looked at a kid and said like, don't you understand the defensive end that they've been recruiting who they have, you know, committed to sign for them in two weeks. They've known him and had a relationship with him for three years. They're not going to throw him by the wayside on the off chance that you, a kid who's never visited their facility, who's never gone to a camp who they've never seen in person They've never seen you walk in by the door that they have the marks on to verify your height. They've never had you step on a scale. They've never actually, they know nothing about you, you know? And like at the time we're, we're using VHS tapes. It's like 260p. It's utterly indistinguishable which player you even are on the field. They can't even see your number on fucking tape. Like it's insane that they're giving anyone scholarships at that point, really. Uh, cause they're having to just like take so many shots in the dark. Um, 
but so just my expectations were insane back then that I thought that they would offer me two weeks before signing day, having never seen me, having never kicked the tires. So I felt really jaded by that. And then simultaneously a kid who I had played with like two years earlier came back and had visited over winter break. And he came into the weight room at the high school uh, to work out and he had his knee in a big brace and he like walked in, did bench. And when he got up to leave, he was on crutches. I was like, well, what happened? And he's like, oh, I tore, you know, my ACL and my MCL. I don't think he ever played another down. I don't think he even returned to the school. Just like, it was like, you know, you went for one year, got hurt. And that was it. That was the end of it. Um, and so I think all of those things together uh, kind of led up to feeling like at the same time, you know, I have this one sort of unique opportunity that I can say to my parents in Tallahassee, Florida, who know zero people who have ever worked in entertainment to say to them like, Hey, I think what I want to do is, you know, be a filmmaker and tell stories. And I felt like I have this one pitch, uh, cause I've known other people who went and got, you know, a normal degree. And then we're like, okay, mom and dad, I got the degree. I did my part. Now I'm going to go do the thing that I want to do. And they move out to LA and they, they work in film and it, they're successful because it turns out absolutely nobody. And this is in most industries. Nobody cares where you went to college, what degrees you have, what certifications you have. No one cares. You're avid certified. Sweet. We'll hire a high schooler if he can out edit you on that same software. No one cares. Um, but I felt like if I don't do this in college, like if I don't make that declaration now, I'll be, you know, too chicken shit to try and switch to it later. I'll get on a track and I'll end up just sort of going down that track. And what I was fearful of was that the only other track that I knew was training, which is like the great irony in all of this. What I intended to do in the event that I absolutely fell on my face and failed is what 10, 12 years later, I realized, uh, or 13 years later, it, no, 14, 15, actually, 15 years later is what I realized is the thing that I actually want to do and am most happy doing, which is training. So I make movies, I'm still making a movie, still finishing a movie. I don't want to be making movies. <laughs> but they're so good. The first one was the the one that I I've only seen West Side versus the World not the other obviously but it's 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 so good I could I could sit and watch it probably every day to be really honest um, yeah so you said that uh, when you went to first talk to Louis or pitch the idea to Louis about the movie that you didn't really have the relationship with Louis but your dad did so what was kind of your you said training was kind of like something you wanted to fall back on so what was your training background like. Um, obviously you have to be pretty big, fast, strong to play football. So kind of what was your training history leading up to that high school senior moment? What was your training? Like even after you graduated, did you stop training kind of like, well, and even like, what's your dad's background in the training environment itself? Yeah. Um, so take it from the top, I guess. So my dad, my dad grew up a poor kid in a very expensive suburb of Chicago. He grew up, you know, like the poorest kid in Lake Forest, Illinois. Um, so, you know, being, you know, coming from 
coming from poverty when literally your neighbors are millionaires. You know, like I, I visited the, the, you know, where he grew up and it was a, a little, you know, it, it was, it was not a nice house and it was literally, it was a lot that was sandwiched between multi-million dollar homes. Um, and his family didn't have a car, you know, he came from like poor Irish, uh, Irish immigrants. And so he was around wealth his whole life, but didn't have access to it. Um, and one of his friends who was a very good football player, who I believe played at Michigan, um, when he was, you know, in high school, took a liking to him and was like, oh, you got to come over and, you know, work out. I've got a, you know, I've got a weight set up. And so he worked out and he saw it as this vehicle, you know, it, this is, you know, 60s and, and early 70s, you know, like he saw this as a vehicle to, this is this is a, a rope that I can climb, who knows where it leads, but this is something that can help me get somewhere, you know, somewhere that's not this. And um, so he ended up, he ended up getting uh, an offer to play at Princeton, um, you know, played there, got a degree, I believe in like history, and then became a stockbroker. So, you know, it, it was just, because again, you get a degree, no one really cares, you know, you get a degree from Princeton, no one really asks too many questions about where it's from or what it's in, you know, so uh, he he became a stockbroker was uh, was successful and as soon as he had money bought it you know bought the big house and had some space in the garage very quickly kicked the cars out of the garage put up you know put in a squat rack which then turns into like well you got to have you know got to have a dedicated bench got to have a dedicated incline got to have this got to have that you know, there's a better squat rack now, you know, like, and uh, simultaneous, he had been diagnosed when he was very young with a congenital back issue. And it's something that honestly, like I probably have as well. Um, and he was told things like, you know, you'll never play football. Um, you'll never play any organized sport. You know, his parents made him do cross country after doctors told him this. And he had to beg to be able to play football, which ultimately would get him to Princeton and, you know, change his life. Um, but so he, he had had to do all of these like Canadian air force exercises, you know, to, to strengthen his back when he was young so that he would be allowed to play sports. And then that back thing that they told him, you know, uh, you know, your, your back will never hold up. You're going to be, you know, old and broken. He ended up not only playing at Princeton, he ended up getting like really big into lifting and training, um, and continued playing semi-pro football after the market closed until he was 37 years old. You know, so he'd, he'd go out and be playing, you know, on a high school field, playing 11 on 11 tackle football in his late thirties. I do not understand. I'm 36 now. I do not understand how he was able to do this. Uh, and he'd be playing with dudes who were fresh out of FSU and FAMU who are, you know, 23, 24 years old, still trying to make a roster and get a tryout and just trying to like stay fresh. And meanwhile, he's coming in and, you know, parking the car and taking off of, you know, his, his get up from stockbroking and, you know, stockbrokering and going out and being this weird old white dude who, who just wants to be malicious and hit people. 
uh, you know, um, but he was always like, he, my dad's a lot like me. He's, you know, maniacal and obsessive about the things that he's interested in has relatively few interests. And so training was one of them. Then, uh, you know, we went to West side when I was in sixth grade, I was 12 years old. I just started throwing shot put and discus. So I, I made it to AU uh, nationals for track. It was in Cleveland. My dad, who doesn't like to leave his home ever, uh, was like, oh, this is the perfect time for a vacation because Cleveland's in Ohio and Westside's in Ohio. So, you know, it's right there, you know, because Cleveland and Columbus are not three hours apart or whatever. Um, but so we went to Westside for a couple of days while we were up there. Um, and my dad got to talk. He had he had talked to Louie for years. He had found because of the back problem, he had uh he had found out about the reverse hyper. He bought one like sight unseen. Um, and so we had one of the first reverse hypers, I believe the first reverse hyper in like 1994 in Florida. So just things like this were normal to me. You know, my dad was watching West Side tapes every afternoon in, in our kitchen. That was normal to me. You know, Chuck Vogelpohl was as normal as Scotty Pippen. That's, you know, like we heard about, I knew I could name more West Siders in the late nineties uh, in the late nineties when I'm like 10, 11, 12 years old, I could name more West Siders than I could name members of the Chicago bears, which was our team. Um, so like that was, that was just what I was exposed to is what was normal to me. Uh, you know, like as I got older training manuals and, and, you know, Soviet texts and stuff, just sitting out on our kitchen table was normal to me. Um, I got to high school. I was a decent athlete, um, coming into high school. Like, you know, when we played on the playground, I wasn't the kid who got picked first, but I was in probably the top, you know, third of kids who would get picked whenever we, we played any kind of pickup game. I could hold my own. I was always a contributor. Then I got to, to high school and for whatever reason, the coaches did not want to play me. Um, my JV season, my freshman year, literally I did not appear in a single snap of JV football. Now I graduated at six foot three, 243 pounds and could run a four, seven hand time um, with a, a 31 inch vertical on Vertec. I started high school at 6'1", 6'1 155 pounds and ran like a six something hand time. I was slow. I was weak. Um, I wasn't like extraordinarily slow, but I was, I was, you know, at best very average in terms of speed with above average height. Um, a pretty big frame, but very little meat or muscle on it. So I didn't play literally the entire season. I, I appeared in four plays in a makeup game for 9-11, um, which was a very odd experience in and of itself. Um, <clears throat> and it was a situation where a kid's equipment broke. And so the coaches, it's the fourth quarter of an exhibition game that's happening a week after JV season ended, and it was freshman only. 
And I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, there's like five minutes left. They told me they were going to play me. And I'm like, they're not going to ever, I'm, I'm not a part of this team's plans in any way, shape or form. So a clip on a kid's helmet broke. And because it was freshman only, you know, kids are playing in crazy positions because the sophomores aren't there. And, uh, they're struggling to get somebody on the field and I'm just standing close enough that I hear the commotion going on with the coaches. I just haul ass out on the field. I line up and I, I play four plays at linebacker, make two tackles. And then they pull me out of the game and tell me because I ran onto the field without them telling me to go in that I would never play again. Um, which was fine. Cause there was like three minutes left at this point And we didn't, you know, uh, our offense, you know, ran out the clock and kneeled the ball um so it didn't matter anyways um but so after that i was just in ray i didn't like football at that point either because i you know the experiences was just terrible i was like you go to these three-hour practices you do everything the coach wants and it's like the coaches aren't even paying attention which we had two close two coaches on the jv staff so you had two adults running like 60 something kids through practice of course they weren't paying attention and they're doing it for free and one of the kids is you know one of the coaches is like 21 years old so you realize like later on you're like i understand how it how it happens this way like this sport is not really set up to succeed for anyone um but i went and told my dad i was like you know whatever you know about training like let's do it let's do it now and he went and immediately like we maxed out and I benched we had one and a quarter pound plates um so I benched 112 and a half and I box squatted 87 and a half yeah I was oh I was a monster just huge absolutely huge numbers yeah and then in the spring I was probably up to like 175 so I gained about 20 pounds um I was benching probably like 150, 160. Uh, I was considerably faster. I'd made such a big physical change in the like, you know, probably October to uh, May that when I showed up like to get sized for pads and stuff, the coaches introduced themselves to me which is also to just to give you an idea of how much I meant to this organization as a freshman, the coaches literally thought that I was a new player. Oh no. So they asked, you know, they, they asked what school I'd come from. They assumed that I had transferred in. I was in these coaches classes as well. So like one of these guys, I'm like, you see me five days a week. You see me every single morning. Like I'm, I'm very confused. (laughs) We only have 20 kids in our class. What are you, how is this happening? But, uh, um, I had a list of, there were six kids who were ahead of me on the depth chart that year, JV and varsity all practiced together. And I was just concerned with, I'm going to be, I'm going to make myself so good that they have to play me on JV. And at the end of the summer, uh, varsity went to their field jv went to their field and i ran out to the jv field and i got in warm-up lines and i got in the front in the center i stood where like where the captains were supposed to be i was like i'm going to assert myself and we start doing jumping jacks and we used to start every practice with 100 up downs 
So I'm out there, I'm doing up downs and I'm yelling, you know, one and going out two. And as I'm in the middle of up downs, one of the varsity coaches comes over and is yelling, Fahey, what are you doing? What the hell, boy? Get over here. And so I I take my helmet off and run over and I'm like, you know, I'm I'm thinking I'm in trouble. Like, what's going on? And he's like, You, you know, you're not on JV anymore, you're on varsity. And I was like, Oh, I I did all of this. I watched Chuck Vogelpool tapes every day and train like a madman so that I would start on JV. And I ended up being a three-year two-way starter on varsity and was leading receiver at tight end my first game. I had never, never played tight. I switched to tight end four days before our first game and ended up being the leading receiver. It would also be the only time I would ever be the leading receiver in a game for the next three years, but. Um, just need one. It's okay. You just need one. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah so then all all of a sudden i was like on the front page of the sports uh i was on the front of the sports page on on the local paper and everyone suddenly knew i went from the kid who was in art club to a jock in like (laughs) a 12-hour span um and yeah i got i got really big got really strong got really fast that give you that give you even more buy-in you're like all right dad back to the back to the bad lab here we go let's go watch some more west side did it give you even more of that motivation to be like all right what can because it's like you said you were just trying to make the jv team and you thought that you'd kind of met that minimum barrier to kind of get to the jv starting position and it's now like okay now i'm a varsity player so now like where did you kind of have that moment of like okay how far can this go now and i haven't even really scratched the surface of my potential i feel like well it was it the game where i had been the the leading receiver um the team that we played had some studs on it um like i ended up playing against uh gosh um like roy upchurch was in that game he went to alabama um and then played in the nfl um uh Deion, this kid who played safety for clemson was in that game uh there were there were just a bunch of monsters who were in that game so a lot of people were there to scout it so i ended up you know all of a sudden the next week coaches who were coming through the area because tallahassee always produced studs um you know, so coaches who were in the area suddenly were stopping by and, you know, asking about me and uh, they couldn't talk to me directly because I was a sophomore, but they would kind of like pull me over so that I was close enough to hear the conversation. You know, they're having a conversation with me, but just with my coach standing right there, basically. And I'm like, you know, I'm across the the track lanes like, and they're shouting their side of the conversation to me. It was very weird. So it was just like suddenly. uh I didn't, I didn't know enough about anything to have really expectations for myself, but all of a sudden, you know, like I remember I went trick or treating that year, um, with my sister, I had a younger sister, um, and I was taking her trick or treating, trick or treating, and we were playing a game the next day. So I was just wearing like a t-shirt with like my football team on it and, we get to this house and the guy opens the door and he's like, you're Fahey. And I was like, you know, uh, this dude didn't have kids who went to my school or anything. It was very creepy. 
uh and he was like yeah i i, I saw you on rivals and i was just like what the you know like and he started at, i'm at the door i'm 16 years old um and my sister was in a wheelchair so i'm like standing there and like you know are you gonna give her candy so we can leave and this guy's asking me like what schools are you looking at and i'm like i, I don't know man like i didn't this the notion that this could be a thing I even did I was like I didn't even know if I would I was like I never I never even thought as far as like would I make varsity which is also absurd looking back at it because basically if you just stuck around you automatically made varsity there wasn't you know even now like it's you got to be pretty bad to get cut from most of the teams in this area just because like Kids aren't playing football the way that they used to, you know, that used to be what every single human did. And now basketball players don't play football anymore. And the, these players don't play football. Everyone plays one sport year round now. So, you know, if you want to wear a helmet, they'll give you one. If you want to get hit, they'll let you. Yeah. I can't remember what your question was at this point. Well, like, if, if you were curious if Tallahassee people really enjoy their football, like during the nine early two thousands and nineties, because you got Florida State, obviously, but it's like, yeah, this you just walk up to this guy's house and he's he's like, oh yeah, by the way, like people in Tallahassee seem to be a little crazy about football down there. So yeah, it wasn't quite like you know the old Friday Night Lights movie or anything. But, <laughs> oh gosh, uh, it, you know, isn't that Texas? Texas yeah, that's Texas. Different breed of people. That's a different world. That's a different yeah. world. You take that though, because we had Florida State, and we had FAMU. So that was if you were a Florida State player, people would walk up. You know, you just get hounded like you're a celebrity, even if you're, you know, a preferred walk on or something. But if you're in high school, it's like, oh, okay, maybe one day you'll be like them. You know, like maybe. And that was another thing of just in terms of setting that expectation. You know, like I was on a track team where I was I was telling somebody this last night. Uh, I was telling Bird this uh, on my track team, my AAU track team. Um, one of our four by one teams for AAU was this guy, Jet Cohen, who ended up getting signed by T-Pain and Convict Music. Uh, but Jet would <laughs> hand off to Ernie Sims, who was like ninth overall draft pick. Oh. Uh, you know, Ernie used to come train at our house. Uh, Ernie's currently like the defensive coordinator i think at like ucf um but he was he was the first rivals perfect rated recruit uh you know number one national ranked recruit ernie was the second leg of this four by one he would hand off to pat watkins pat watkins was i believe a fourth or fifth round draft pick by the dallas cowboys and pat would hand off to antonio cromartie no the final leg (laughs) wow and the alternate uh, was like Fred Rouse, who was on the front page of Sport uh, Sports Illustrated a couple of years later with the headline straight to the pros, question mark, because he was the number one recruit in the nation. So, you know, like these are, you know, three guys on that four by one team went to the NFL. And those were just the the dudes that I, you know, sat next to on the bus to the track meets and, you know, would trade sandwiches with and stuff like this was so normal to me. Um, 
you know, other guys that I played against, like I played against Garrett Blunt a few times in high school. Did you um, get punched? I did not get punched. <laughs> I dropped his ass on a counter. <laughs> you didn't. It, uh, my senior year, you if you pulled a guard, I you were getting tackled for a six yard loss because I was coming out. I was playing uh, defensive tackle. One thing that I had picked up on was how to spot when somebody was pulling. And I would get in a track stance and basically broad jump out of my stance, get into the backfield, and then just eat your running back like as soon as he got handed the ball. Um, I wasn't again, I was didn't know like other tendencies and tells. I just knew like he's pulling. All right, I'm getting in his hip pocket before anyone can, you know, down block or cut back on me. Oh, is there still uh, an abundance of I mean, some pretty high level athletes rolling through the public schools because I know like a lot of kids move to Florida because of the academies. And you talked about how there's a lot of year round training for specific, specifically just one sport for kids. So Mm -hmm. is there, do you see a lot of kids jumping from the public scene to these academy type situations now? I mean, has it really impacted the high school, the public scene down there in Florida as bad as what it's made out to be on it on social media? Um, it's it's really bad in some areas. I will say in Tallahassee, um, it happens, but it's not really bad. You know, if you look at Tallahassee the last couple of years, um, I trained a kid, Keon Brown. He signed to Oklahoma. Um, Raylan Wilson was, I believe, the number one linebacker in. So Keon was a, a four star uh, ESPN you know, 300 Raylan Wilson was a five-star. Uh, I believe most services had him as the number one outside linebacker prospect uh, in the country signed to Georgia. Um, he stayed, you know, both of them were at public schools uh, this year. The school that I'm at right now, which is a public school, it is a public charter, um, but it functions as a public school. Um We've got a four-star running back, a four-star wide receiver who are both there. I believe that the other public schools in town, there's a four-star tight end. Um, there's there's very few kids. There, there have been, I can count kind of, like how it works down here is you have very quickly kids kind of separate either they're the academy kids which you better be good as hell and like have a famous dad. That's, that's really how that works. You better have a famous dad, better have a famous brother. Um, or there's the public school kids and there's no questions about those kids. Cause it's, it's, you know, um, it's so stacked. Football is so good down here. Um, you know, I, I, Remember, I I showed, uh, I showed my kids a couple of years ago, like the old, like all Big Ben team. That's sort of like the Florida Panhandle, um, but it's overrepresented by Tallahassee because most of the area around us is like sparsely populated state forests. So we're this one little, you know, sector of of humanity. Um, 
And then there's very little outside of us for, you know, a couple hours in every direction. And I was showing these kids like, you know, I was like, look at this. I had to face LeGarrette Blunt one week, Antonio Cromartie the next week, you know, Ernie Sims, uh, Roy Upchurch, Glenn Coffey, who played for the 49ers and also played at Alabama. Mike Smith, who ran for a thousand yards at Arkansas, like right before Darren McFadden and Felix Jones got in there. Um, you know, uh, I would go through it and I'd be like, you know, I played against like 14 kids in one season who went to the NFL and we're just playing the Tallahassee, like public school schedule. Kids were monsters everywhere. You know, we had, we have a team locally that, for a solid 15 years, they would have, you know, they would have 10 plus kids sign power five D one. Um, like lots of very big time, big time players. And simultaneously, because there's only, you know, about 300,000 people in our Metro area, it's not really big enough to support a lot of, a lot of, uh, private schools. And while the school system is woefully like underfunded statewide, the few public schools that, you know, the public schools that we have in our city uh, specifically are some of the highest rated in the state, even when compared to the private schools. So we're in kind of a weird situation. Other places, um, like I know Miami has a lot of private academies and stuff, but that's mostly because also the cost of living is so much higher there. So they're getting paid the same salaries, but it costs twice as much to live there. So there becomes this economy where the the public uh, or the private academies can can do a lot more damage because they can take not just your players, but your coaches. Yeah, I didn't even think of it from that aspect, but yeah. Um, Alex, you got I'm any- so glad we could talk training today. <laughs> No, we're good. That's what I was going to try to chime him in and bring him in and see if he had Mr. Mr. Uh, Mr. Lewis. Do you have any questions for for Mr. Fahey here on training specifically? I wanted Fahey to tell the story about the one Mr. Dave Tate doing seminars at his house. Like not every day do you have (laughs) someone like that starting because like Swiss has become a big thing. And you're like, yeah, well, Dave kind of started in my garage. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so so in 99 we go to west side and i remember pretty vividly my dad trying to convince louis simmons to come down and do a seminar in tallahassee because he'd hear about these seminars that that louis would do and that west i would do and you know he's like but i can't i can't ever take off the time to travel now he could he just hated traveling um and it turns out you know who else hated traveling louie so my dad's telling him you know like well what if we could sell tickets and you know what if i paid you you know what if what if we paid you a couple thousand dollars and louie would smile and go no five thousand dollars no ten thousand dollars no and then like dave tate just kind of leans in and was like you know i well i would go (laughs) Like I, I'd come down to Tallahassee and, you know, and my dad's talking about his gym, his gym, his gym. The gym was a two car garage with no AC. Like it, the gym Perfect. is 
yeah the the <laughs> but uh you know but he's got you know at this point it's like my dad has you know he has a reverse hyper who the hell has a reverse hyper in their house in the 90s <laughs> no one you know and and like my dad's talking to like at this point in time it, it's not west side didn't have just visitors rolling in every day you'd have people regularly stopping by but they were mostly power lifters and or a, a relatively small group of coaches who would who would come by so like you weren't getting just like fanboys off the street and so they didn't know what my dad was or what to really make of him you know he's just very intense very passionate clearly he was like well read um and you know seemed to be seemed to be involved somehow in in strength and conditioning and or powerlifting um so they just thought like all right you're you know you're a serious dude so when you talk about your gym oh you must be like a hardcore gym owner um but so anyways the following summer dave tate uh agrees to come down and do a seminar i believe it was like a two-day seminar at my dad's gym and um so my dad goes and picks him up and dave's been selling you know elite fts is sort of in its early days but Dave had sold tickets and, you know, he'd sold tickets to people's far away as Australia. And, you know, cause uh, my dad goes, Oh, Ohio, West side's in Ohio, Cleveland's in Ohio. They got to be like right next to each other. That'll be easy. Um, Florida is a great, big, weird L shaped state. And so uh, this Australian dude was like, Oh, I'm going to be in Florida at the time for disney world disney world tallahassee must be right next to each other uh now they're only like three and a half hours away but uh this dude left his family for two days left his family in orlando they went you know they're they're on this once in a lifetime trip to the to the states to to take the take the kitties to you know take the kitties to see mickey and uh He's like, ah, I'll just, I'm just going to go uh, up the road and do this other thing. I'm going to get another hotel room and, and stay in this place called Tallahassee and uh, go to the seminar at a gym that he's paid money for. And uh, so my dad goes and he picks Dave Tate up at our, our airport, which Vice Magazine once called the greatest airport on earth, uh, specifically because you could, you could uh, sign up to take college courses at the airport and you can make it through security in about four minutes. Um, so uh, Dave gets off, you know, at this relatively small airport. He walks out, you know, he's immediately hit with a blast of our, our nice, warm, wet, like August air. And my dad picks him up, drives him across town. And that drive is the airport is surrounded by state forest. So you're driving through the woods. And then you start to see a little bit of town. Um, and then you get on the interstate and then you're driving by what looks like more woods, but is actually through sort of the middle of civilization. It just has like rows of woods that hide. Uh, our, our city is literally like hidden from all directions by woods so that it appears much smaller than it is. And then once you get through these little pockets of woods, like huge, subdevelopments open up but so 
from Dave's perspective, he's just being hauled out into the middle of nowhere. And then finally he gets off the interstate thinking like, are we even in Tallahassee anymore? Which they were, they were more in Tallahassee than they'd been before. But he sees a little bit of civilization and then immediately it's just back into the woods. And my dad's talking, my dad's super excited. My dad, uh, when he gets talking and he gets going and he starts to like spin a yarn, he's he's really demonstrative and he he does a lot of a lot of head motions and a lot of like he's he everything gets like big and excited and he's he's like learn you know lurching at you as he talks to you uh so it looks like he's fighting with you and he it's just like he's excited to see he's like a dog sort of in that way where you know like he just lunges at you on the leash like you know i can't believe dave tate's here you know Dave Tate, got to talk about weightlifting. And Dave's just looking around going like, fucking woods everywhere, man. Like, what are we doing? And then they pull into what is very obviously a neighborhood. He's driving by, you know, big house after big house. It's like, this is a very nice neighborhood, but what are we doing here? And then he pulls down a long, unfinished driveway because my parents have lived in the same house since 1985, but have never finished the driveway. So it's a giant castle in the woods with an unfinished driveway. It's very bizarre. And uh, my dad pulls up quickly, like stops the car. He's talking to Dave. He gets out, still talking, and he just walks into the house. And Dave is literally sitting in like his old Fort Explorer, looking around and going like, have I made a grave mistake here? Like what's... Like, did he have to change or something? You know, like, because he wasn't dressed like they were going to the gym. And, you know, he's, oh, I just got to, I got to show you my gym. Got to show you my gym. Dave has like sold him equipment at this point. And my dad comes back out and he's like, you coming inside? What are you, you know, what are you doing? Like, get out of the car. And so Dave gets out and he's just like, oh, holy shit. Like, because he's staying with us too. And, so he's like, well, maybe I'm just, well, maybe we're just putting our stuff down. Then we're going to the gym. So, he, you know, my sister has like a Girl Scout troop meeting over. I've got some friends over. We're playing like PlayStation or whatever. My mom's baking brownies for the Girl Scouts. And my dad's walking Dave Tate through the house going like, hey, hey, this is this is Dave. This is Dave Tate. This is Dave Tate from the from the video. You've, Dave Tate, look at him. And Dave's just like, hi, everybody. (laughs) And, you know, like, oh, cool. You've got, you know, and we had tons of animals. We had birds and we had rabbits and guinea pigs. And we had a bunch of dogs and a bunch of cats. Like, you know, if, if you had issues being around animals, you would walk in our house and just get like red puffy eyes immediately. And, you know, uh, and it smelled like we had animals, you know, um, and so Dave's just like, what, what bizarre reality, like, do these people live in? What have I stepped into? And my dad takes him to put his stuff up. And then he's like, oh, you got to come see the gym. Got to come see the gym. So Dave thinks, well, maybe we're going to get back in the car, please. They walk down the stairs and they walk past the front door. And he just, he told me later, he's like, oh shit. Like, no, we've messed up. He walks past the, so he walks past the front door and from the outside, he's like, there's not a second building. Like what, 
like does he have a giant converted room or something and he he walks him through and he goes through the kitchen and then he goes through the laundry room which is where all the litter boxes were and it just, that thing reeks and he goes through the through the laundry room and then out to the garage and again it's august in florida it's super hot it's super muggy you know heat index well over 100 every single day and Dave's like, I got like 25 people coming for this seminar. Where are they going to sit? And he opens up, the, he sees that it's a garage with a broken garage door that my dad like manually lifts up. And uh, and then again, just like bushes outside on the other side of the door, mosquitoes, heat. And like, you know, if you leave the door down, it gets hotter. If you put the door up, mosquitoes come in and when it rains in the afternoon the rain basically just comes in sideways so you're just the whole time like what kind of discomforting hell am i gonna subject myself to and dave's just like i'm trapped like i've already sold tickets to this thing people are gonna like want their money back or sue me i don't know what's gonna happen but this is not good and um yeah the next day people show up and I guess Dave realized that like the kind of crowd who would pay a few hundred bucks to learn about West side and conjugate and uh, all that are also the kind of crowd who don't bat an eye uh, or hesitate at all. When you ask them to go into someone's weird ass home dungeon, like everyone who showed up was like, Oh yeah, this is normal. Like no red flags, you know? Um, and I remember there's a hellacious storm. So like, you know, again, they're like, you know, do we put the door up? Then the water comes in. Do we put the door down? Then it's, you know, so just every 20 minutes, they're lifting the door up and down, trying to decide, like, do we like getting bit by bugs more and being wet or or being wet because we're sweating through our clothes? Which one do we want, guys? And then they went to like a barbecue place and stuff. And it ended up being so good that uh, Dave asked, you know, can we do this again? So they did it in 2000, then 2001. Only the only difference was Dave got a hotel room. Um, and then they were supposed to do it again in 2004 with Windler. And then I think Windler ended up after booking it, ended up finding out that like um, he was going to have a kid and that that was going to, the date was going to put him too close to, uh, to like the delivery. So Dave came down again. Uh, so yeah, we did, we did three of these weird, seminars in my garage um and dave dave told me later he's like i learned a lot about what kind of questions i have to ask before kind of doing an off-site event um so yeah it was it was was good times that's amazing that's an amazing story and to get him to come back that's the beauty of it it's like the cherry on top yeah it was just like not just one time that they suffered they were like oh yeah this is worth coming back two to three times yeah and then and you know then my dad was like oh you know you want to do it again and it kind of was like at that point it was like elite had grown so big that he's like yeah i kind of want to do things like indoors now (laughs) like i kind of want to do things at places that can pass like building codes now (laughs) have like some modern conveniences maybe Mm -hmm. air conditioning being the first of those yeah 
but by oh. the by the second or third one like we had a monolift we had a belt squat we had wow. i mean we had everything um and my dad still and my dad somehow has more stuff now in the same amount of space um it's too much stuff frankly it makes it kind of hard to train because you know you want to you want to use one piece of machinery cool you got to dig out three other machines to get to it <laughs> so about the training fahey that you use with the kids are you fully using the conjugate system that you learned while at west side or have you developed your own way of using it or how do you like to train the kids um so uh i started with a pretty uh pretty like to the letter kind of four day template that everyone um, I think associates as being West side. Um, and that worked particularly well for their lower body lifts. Um, their upper body lifts didn't progress as fast as I would want. There's some basic challenges like, you know, when you're doing conjugate, um, it works for everyone all the time, always, anywhere, everywhere. But uh, if you have kids who like, if you have kids who are who are naturally like very inquisitive and curious, like they're going to soar with it, you know, because they're going to ask, you know, well, why do we do this? And you're going to give them an answer. It's going to make sense. And they're going to have better buy-in and like understand what they're trying to do. Um but you'll get some kids, especially kids who have like played other sports or, or maybe they had, you know, they had like a football coach who ran their weight room before who tried to use as some sort of like sadistic punishment. Um, and so now when they get in the weight room, they're like incapable of really like relaxing and just kind of like cerebrally, like saying, this is what we're doing right now. And it's okay. And like the purpose is to get me better you know, I'm doing this to get better. And now, you know, now I can see how I get better. Um, when you have kids, so if you have kids who kind of like tend to, to zone out, um, it doesn't work as well for them. Um, training small groups is really easy, but you know, as your buy-in gets better, like I went from training the first week that I was at the public school, having, uh, or at the first school, I had eight kids the first week or the first day I had like eight kids. And by the end of the week, I had 18 different kids who'd come in. But by, you know, the third month, we were having 76 co kids come in a day. And we still had the same six squat racks and the same, you know, the same six bars. And, you know, so now all of a sudden I had to make a lot of changes just because of the logistics and as that number gets bigger and bigger, you know, it just becomes, you know, now I can't like have a conversation with every single kid about how they bench and what kind of cueing they're, you know, like I I can't try and maximize every single kid. Um, Because I, I, I think one of the things that I do well as a coach is like, if it's just me and you, and I'm trying to get the most I can get out of you, you're going to get a lot of stories. I'm going to try and engage your brain as much as possible to give you the context to understand how to do it. So in a small small group setting, that's easy. 
you know, like, cause it's easy to hold the attention of like, say one group of four to five kids or, or two groups of four to five kids. But when you suddenly have, you know, six groups of like 12 kids each, you can't, you can't take the time to do that kind of stuff anymore. Now you have to have something that sort of is more systematic. So I started paring down the, the variations of everything. Um, and I, I couldn't remember, I had to go back and look at like what my dad used to do with me when I was very weak. You know, I was like, I remember kind of what our training was like when I was the kid who could bench press 225 all the way up until I was, you know, going into my senior year benching 370 said, but I couldn't really remember like what got me to 225 and what kind of, so I went back and I looked at like literally my old training logs. And one of the things that I saw was we always did a three rep max. We would do a three rep max and then pyramid up to a one rep, but we would track a three rep and track a one rep for every, every variation we did upper and lower. And what that three rep was really doing was, you know, not only giving you more volume, but it was giving you that brief maximal tension. Cause if you're weak, you know, all of this stuff, everything, everything works the same, but the way that we like categorize it and, and like look at what's happening has to change in context to like how advanced the athlete is. So say like, you know, dynamic effort happens between 75 and 85%. Well, Dave Hoff can't do those percents because his outputs are so astronomically high that that would affect how his body recovers. So he actually works a little under that and that keeps the bar speeds going. And of course, I'm talking right now about top weight. You know, so if you have a straight bar, 75 to 85%, but everyone looks at West side and says, you know, all the dynamic effort doesn't work. And then you ask them what they did and they'll say, well, I did straight weight 50 to 60%. And you go, yeah, because you did, you didn't, there's 25% on each of those that you're missing. But you know? speaking as Dave is an anomaly, I know he said that like, he can't even go above 225 for bench anymore because the bar speed just doesn't stay where it needs to stay. So it ends up being like velocity is a big factor in the dynamic part that I don't think most people understand, right? Like if they're using the bands correctly, they're helping get more velocity out of the bands as opposed to where people will like fight it on the way down, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're you're trying to get that overspeed eccentric, but the, the overspeed is happening even if the bar, the overspeed is like that effect of gravity. So the the idea that the band is pulling you down, you don't you don't literally need the bar to beat gravity down. You know, you good benchers are essentially going to do that because they want to get more stretch reflex and they're so they're going to literally, you know, and it's like the way that I teach my kids to bench, you pull the bar in. You don't let the bar fall. Cuz also if you let the bar fall, your elbows are never going to fall as fast as your wrists, right? So that's gonna automatically put you in this like weird cocked back position where the, the bar ends up coming too high. And, um, but so anyway, it's just, it's, it's contextual. Like Hoff is able, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty good friends with Hoff. I've seen a ton of Hoff's training. 
off helps me out a lot in my training. Um, but most the biggest help that he is, is with like the mental side of things. And again, going back to like talking about expectations and stuff, like nothing is heavy. You, you know, the, the weight is the weight you ju- you tell yourself it's heavy. It's heavy for you today, but in a year it's not heavy. You know, the weight didn't change and you didn't really change. So quit being a bitch now and stop calling it heavy. <laughs> um, but his outputs are so high that he has to, he has to keep his dynamic efforts even faster, you know, um, Louis has, uh, I've heard Louis talk about this before. He's never, he's never, to my knowledge, never written it. Uh, but the idea that dynamic effort, essentially what you're trying to do is that your dynamic effort should be about a third of your jump, the speeds. So if you think about it that way, well, a kid who jumps 30 moves faster than a kid who jumps 20, you know, so a real young kid their dynamic effort should naturally be a little slower, you know? And then when you look at, uh, you know, I know y'all are both aware of Jared. I I watched your video or your episode the other day with with Zach. Um, And Bird has heard the same thing in terms of, you know, a third of, of squat speed before and stuff. I've talked about this with him. So like, as someone gets stronger, their speed needs to go up. And part of that is because now their output is getting higher. So the stress and the stimulus of that output is stronger, right? And their recovery is going to be different. So you have to keep the bar moving even faster now, or else you're going to beat them up and you're going to give them sort of too many inputs to be slow, right? But a kid who's already, who a kid who is currently slow he doesn't have enough force. He can't create enough tension. He can't create enough fatigue. So you have to slow him way down. So that's where, you know, like say, say Jared and even Zach, you know, they, they'll say like, they don't do dynamic effort squats. I kind of disagree. I think that they are doing it. It just is a gear shifted down because their athletes are younger so they don't have as high of outputs. So they need to be moved slower so that they can create the right kind of tension. So those are the kind of like, that's one of the biggest tweaks that I made to my system. Um, right now, like what I'm currently doing is I, you know, uh, Zach mentioned it, like I'm, I'm doing um, something pretty close to like what he has outlined that he does with his kids. Now my accessories are a little bit different, mostly because my equipment is different, mostly because our time frames, you know, all of our logistics are different. But um what I have traditionally done is still do, you know, I'm not I haven't been doing it for the last like two, three weeks. Um but I've traditionally done two max effort days where we do both a triple and pyramid up to a single. So we're tracking both of those numbers. When a kid starts to get strong enough, I will tell the kid, hey, man, I don't actually care about your triple anymore. You know, that 154 pound kid who was benching 300, you know, I I told him, like, I don't really care if you're tripling, you know, 280 or 285. I said, like, I would rather see you bench 305 for a single. 
you know, so like, because your singles are getting to the point where they create enough fatigue and they are the, the mass on the bar is itself enough of a stimulus to give you the, the real effect of max effort training. Um, cause what I, what I found immediately was like when I got to the first high school and, you know, I had five weeks before COVID started in those five weeks, I had two brothers. They, they both play D one football right now. Um, they're defensive linemen. Um, they've been training, you know, daily since they were like in sixth grade, their training age was pretty high. Uh, in five weeks, we went from one of them went from a 305 bench to a 365 bench with a pause and competition. Yeah. Uh, his brother went from a 295 to 335 with a pause and competition and couldn't lock out 345. But so those are I, like, I'm, I'm ecstatic when I get those kinds of gains. But I looked around, I was like, man, I got a ton of kids who, when I came in, they were benching 155 and five weeks later, they're benching 160. But all of my kids, I started to notice like literally in the data, there was kind of a shelf around 225, where if you were over 225, I could get you really fast to 275 or 300. But if you were under 225, like you progressed at this like snail's pace. And, you know, the kids were still happy about it. The coaches were happy about it. But I was like, you know, those kids are those kids with the lower training ages. They're supposed to be the ones that are easier to move. And, you know, sure, they're still on pace to go up like 60 pounds a year. And that's that's great. That's nice. But I'm greedy. I want more. So I was like, you know, I don't, you know, so I went back and was talking to my dad about, you know, what did we do? And, and that's when I started to look and see, well, the three rep maxes and um, started to uh, started to, to, I'd already been talking to Jared for a while. Um, even, you know, years before I, I started training kids uh, consistently, but I, I went back to talking to him and again, you know, integrating more I, I just bumped up the percentages basically and then I got VBT units and I was like you know well Louis always talking about 0.7 to 0.9 but my kids aren't that you know he's trying to mimic essentially the squat speeds of elite jumpers well my kids you know my kids aren't averaging 2.1 meters or whatever when they leave the ground or when they jump they're they're averaging a gear lower so I tried 0.6 Point seven, point eight, and then went point five, point six, point seven. You know, and and I found as I slowed them down, they you know they did better. And then I had some kids that I had some college kids that I was training, um, and they were again they'd be in small groups, and so I could kind of go back to more of what I like, which is more variability, more. Uh, a greater distinction between max effort and dynamic effort. And I had a kid go from uh, a 200, 200 pounds on a 12 inch box uh, for one rep, uh, a kid who wanted to play tight end. Um, who would just exceptionally weak hamstrings. Um, couldn't get off the box with more than 200 pounds at 12 inches um less than a year later he was doing 385 for four sets of four 
every rep north of 0.65 with uh three uh 300 pounds of band tension at the top like fucking monstrous and we put on 45 pounds and you make me feel like such a bitch i appreciate that yeah i just did 300 pounds on the cambered bar onto a 12 inch box with only like 40 pounds of chain and that sucked yeah yeah that's really humbling appreciate that what's your (laughs) dynamic effort work look like uh, I have I didn't do as much, but now I've been doing more like what you're talking about right now and trying to just get more raw strength. But so I haven't been doing much speed work recently. I did some before my peak or during my peak on a competition because I was trying uh, Swedes fifth set stuff. Mm-hmm. You do it right before competition, and it wasn't bad. But I ended up squatting like four four sixty eight in competition or four fifty eight in competition, and there yeah. was a lot of left in the tank. But I squat like an Olympic lifter, so. Yeah, I don't. I don't do have, have that. Do you have a, a training partner? No, it's just me. Oh, well, there's there's part yeah, of that's your that's a big okay. problem. I know. I'm aware. Yeah. Be <laughs> be 19, right? And have a training partner who is also a hyper competitive, you know, college athlete, right? Because I had so that kid, I had him uh, at 238 pounds. He could jump 37.5 on the just jump mat. Um and run a four, seven 40 on laser. And I had him train for a couple months. He had a buddy who came in, who was a a college pitcher who was pretty strong. He was much smaller. I don't know exactly what he weighed, but, um, he, he, he looked like he had lifted a lot. Like he had a a much higher training age and, and was, was generally, you know, relatively stronger when he started lifting with me. Um, he trained with me for something like nine weeks and, uh, I, I put up a video of this on, on burn the ladders on Instagram, like last spring or something, but, uh, he was the kid who ran the four, four, eight. Yeah. He's a college pitcher. He had never, he hadn't run the 40 since like high school. And I was like, what do you think you run? He's like, I don't know, man, like four, nine. And I was like, no, you, you, you run way faster than that. Like I hadn't seen him run yet, but I was like, you run way faster than that. Um, and he ended up his, his 30 to 40 split was, uh, like 22.9 miles per hour during that. Yeah. We just got him strong as shit and did zero running for him in that time period. And wait, you don't need to have like form for running. You can just get stronger and get faster. Yeah. If you have form, if you have form, because I do some form shit too, and I like doing form shit, but because the form shit, I can get like an extra half mile an hour on you, you know, like, so I can take you from, you know, 21.5 to 22, you know, like, and I, I enjoy doing that. However, that's, that's the icing on the top of the cake. It's, it's not the cake. Right. There's got to be a base of strength before you worry about that. Right. Yeah. Um, well, also, cause you have to be fast enough to, again, all of these concepts are like, they don't, I can give you the equation for when you are here, but you can't just do like, you can't plug that into everything. It's like squat depth. Like, you know, uh, like, you know, when Jared talks about, um, I figured this out from Jared without Jared telling me 
uh, when Jared said, you know, like uh, have my kids go to a six, uh, 12 inch box. And when I take them down to a 10 inch box, they get slower. If I took them up to a 13, they get slower. And he's like, you know, but the slow kids could go to a 13 and get faster. And it clicked like a light bulb. You know, I was like, oh, because the faster you are, the higher your knee raises in relationship to your hip when you accelerate. Right. So, of course, slow kid, you can do quarter squats. Slow kid gets faster. But the fast kid will get slower. Because it no longer represents the form the fast kid has. So the fast kid will detrain in the range that you're not hitting. And now he's only creating, he's, he's only increasing his force through a, a slim portion of his, his leg swing and his gait cycle. Um, but uh, yeah. So whether, it, whether it's, you know, benching squat, like it doesn't really matter your outputs as your outputs grow, everything that you do for them has to kind of, balance you know accordingly and then ultimately the body will the body doesn't want to like warp and distort its force velocity curve it it will allow you easily to raise the curve but if you just try and zone in on one part of the curve and create like a bubble within it it doesn't want to do that so it'll fight you and it'll kind of like lock up and that's why you see like a ton of football players who some people say like, well, they just have great genetics. And I go, no, they don't like they've got, they've got good genetics, but they're benching, they're squatting, they're running, they're jumping, they're doing a little bit of everything. And so their body's never really slowing down in any one thing. It's right. always progressing forward, even though they're not spending a ton of time on any one thing. Guys who spend a ton of time on one thing, short term, they get much better at it. And then they hit a brick wall. It's like, yeah, because your body doesn't want to, you know, like a great bodybuilder will tell you, like, you want big biceps, you have to have big triceps. Because the bigger your triceps are, the easier it is for your body to allow you to build the bicep. It'll allow you to do that in, in balance. You can't have big biceps and have small forearms. You know, like, you, you can't, you have to, you have to keep everything going kind of together in unison you can pull up the end of one side of the force velocity curve and drag out the other side your body will let you do that right. because it means that you've kind of built the qualities that all exist in between that's a pretty good pretty good argument for concurrent periodization that's what you're saying mm -hmm. well that's how every i mean like you know louis would say like life is conjugate right and contrary to what the fucking trailer for my movie says, Louis would say everyone trains West Side. The whole world is West Side. Now, Luke Edwards <laughs> said you don't train West Side unless you're in West Side. And I put it in the trailer because it sounds cool. But no, like everyone trains a little bit West Side, whether they want to admit it or not. If you only, you know, if you're good at it, you recognize that it's a little bit West side. If you're bad at it, you don't want to tell people that it's a little bit West side, but everything is conjugate. Everything, you know, conjugate or concurrent, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Everything is conjugate. Right. Everything fits within conjugate. You know, you want to do triphasic? Cool. That's conjugate. Tier? That's conjugate. Crossfit? That's conjugate. 
There's a reason why they consulted Louie when they started CrossFit. It's all con- because conjugate is the toolbox. And right. there, you don't use every tool all the time, but sometimes you need a hammer. Sometimes you need a screwdriver. Sometimes you need a hammer with a different head. Sometimes you need a screwdriver with a different head. Sometimes you need a drill. Sometimes you want something with more finesse. You use a mallet. It, like You can do anything in context to whatever your problem is that you need to solve, whatever attribute you're trying to build, and whatever your like, genetic or physical sort of barriers are. But everything is conjugate and everything's the same. You don't, you don't take 12 weeks of, of math, take one test or, you know, and then take 12 weeks of English all day. They've tried that before. What did they find? You lose the, the intellectual traits that you developed in the previous block. They don't extend into the next block because the body, you know, this all goes down to the way that we intake information. We have technology that allows us to store information at our fingertips. And that's great. It's awesome to reference. However, it's not a substitute for knowledge, right? Because our, our bodies aren't, you know, it takes thousands of years for even the smallest evolutions to happen takes millions of years for for drastic evolutions to happen so we've had the internet and we've had computers and we've had printing presses we've had all this for but a blip of time our brains our our dna at this point does not know that we've got the internet and we've got access to what has happened for years and years on end we are wired to work on what are you know what is the daily task that you're going to need with some residual energy, some residual memory of what happened the last time we experienced this or this season, and what happened the you know for a couple seasons prior. That's why we're super adaptable when we're young. But every year, your body goes, "Huh, we made it through another winter where we didn't have to, you know, like jump up steep mountains." I guess we don't need to express strength that way. Meanwhile, another, you know, another child is born with relatively similar genetics in, you know, the step of high steps of Mongolia. And they develop that strength because that they had to walk up that hill every day. You know, if that same kid grew up in another place, they wouldn't have to do that every day. There have been studies on on uh, uh, jumping, you know, jumping in children. The more you jump, the taller you grow for children. Now think about that from an evolutionary perspective. Like, you know, and certainly that doesn't work for just like one person that like, oh, if I jump all day long, I'm going to grow six inches higher. But if you look at, say, like a random sampling of, of, uh, say, girls, and the average girl is five foot five, five foot four, five foot five. And then you go look at a random sampling of prepubescent girls, you know, who end up playing volleyball. So you go to like a travel ball type facility or, or, you know, there might be there might be 300 girls there who are all basically the same height, 
None of them have hit their growth spurts yet. They should be relatively representative of the statistical norm. But if you catch up with those girls 10 years later, you'll find that they're like two inches taller on average. Their DNA didn't change. The inputs and what was being expressed did. Because if you're jumping all the time, it must mean that it's pretty important to get something that's high. Makes sense, but I got fucked because I played basketball for 12 years and that shit did not help me, I don't think. Yeah, we're, yeah. He, didn't get, <laughs> he didn't get that one. No, that one, my body did said, well, or, or maybe I would have been 5'4", five, 5'3". Five, Who knows? Maybe I did grow a few inches. Maybe getting to average height was was not in the cards originally. <laughs> well, that's it, so it, it, but that would that would all depend though on right. how you played. Yeah, right. did you did were you trying just to be a rebound monster? Uh, I was trying to dunk as much as possible, so yeah. there was yeah. definitely a fair amount of jumping in enough to where it made my odds good slaughters really pissed off all the time. So yeah, that might be the other factor. But no, that yeah. makes perfect sense, right? The environment you're in is going to dictate what happens to your body. So if you're having to reach for things, yeah. Yeah. But it's also like, when did you start? Oh, I was super young. I was like six or seven. I played until high school. Well, but six or seven isn't actually that young. That's true. Because that's that's what I'm getting at is, so you went through six, your body was like at your most vulnerable point and your most pliable point, your body went through six or seven full annual cycles uh probably 10 10 of those i played till i was 16 so yeah no no i'm saying before oh. before oh, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 okay yeah i get yeah. what you're saying yeah so yeah, your body's going you know like Doesn't hey we never shit. have to do these things yeah and then so every subsequent year the the reactive like the sort of pliability of of what your body can express potentially it your body goes, well, we went like, we went six years without ever having to jump to get anything. Right. Jumping must not be part of our environment. And if jumping is part of your environment, you go, well, shit, there must be something high up that we need in order to sustain life. You just gave me a new niche. I'm making some jacked babies. So anybody that want to get your kids. I'm working on it, man. <laughs> yeah, right. My daughter's quads already are huge. We're going to have to have that conversation because I just had a newborn too. So yeah. They're going to start benching Nate right yep. now. Bench, yeah. Well, squat, the, <laughs> so I've already, I've already thought about all that. Um, I haven't d done most of this, um, but I've already looked at like on Amazon, getting little plastic, uh, little plastic. I'm, I'm trying to be careful of how I say this little plastic. What they technically are is they're little plastic plugs to like seal up a hole in a plastic surface. So like if you drill, say, if you get like one of those little toy weight sets and you drill a hole into it because the toy is hollow, weighs mm -hmm. you know just a couple ounces, and then you micro load it with a little sand and then you <laughs> plug back in and you let baby <laughs> play with that for a while. And then, you know, every couple of weeks, you just put a little more sand in. Aggressively overload it. Plug yeah, back yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And then after a while, you know, my goal is that when my daughter's a few years old and, you know, gets to the point where she has play dates that other kids come over and go to like pick up her toys and they can't lift them. And she like, she's just, you know, genius over there, man, handling them like Thor's hammer. Real yeah. Life. Yeah. 
I want it to be like, it'll be like Thor's American girl doll. Right. <laughs> but, uh, That's yeah, awesome. but the problem kind of like what I was saying with the kids is you realize like, if I have a smart kid who's very focused, I can do like very, you know, I, I can do like adult style conjugate with them and get crazy results. Cause they, you know, they focus in on every little thing and, you know, you get kids who I, I, I came up very early. I was like, kids kind of fall into a couple different groups. Most kids are like a one concept kid. So, you know, it's try and do that faster. Try and do that harder. Try do this, do this, do this. Very rarely you'll get a kid where you go like, you know, okay, so your foot's pronating as you do that. You you need to try, you know, you need to try and get feel that force, you know, shift, shift to the big toe. Like very rarely do you get a kid where you can give them a real specific cue. Right. Especially early on, because if you give them that cue, they completely undo something else. So you have yeah, to get all they these, focus on. Yeah, you have to give them these holistic concepts and you know, like a one concept cue, uh, a two con like you can give them two things. But if you start to if you go like, if I just tell you the thing that I actually want you to do, it's going to make everything worse. Right. So I have to like give you something that causes you to organize with the language that you understand but so all that is to say my daughter right now is, you know, she's not even a one concept cue kid. So it's very frustrating. Uh, I'm like, you know, we gotta, we gotta develop, you know, we, we gotta develop like her hip flexors and her shoulders so that she gets into that crawling position, feels more comfortable in it. And I know how to do it, but she doesn't listen. You know, I'm like, let's go do push-ups, And she, you know, she'll do like one and then she's clapping. And I'm like, no, you're already good at that. We need to, we need to work on your weaknesses, Harper. And she's no, no, I just want to do the things that I'm good at. I'm going to clap and I'm going to do like a Superman thing. Right. She wants right. to walk. I'm like, Gentlemen, I have to get off to a session. So if you'd like to continue, right. I can make Nathan the host. Or if you guys also have things to do on Friday, we can. My, well, my kid is screaming in the background as I mute myself. So <laughs> I'm just oh, okay. waiting. So, you know, you're good. Well, thank you very much, Michael. We need to do this again and we will get to the actual training part. So. Yeah. Any, any time. I kind of feel like we just had a conversation and I robbed you of a podcast. But... No, it's great. No, this no, is no, a great no. podcast. This, this great. is what we do on the podcast. Yep. We learn about the guests. We don't always have to talk about training. Heck Nathan's no. wife yeah. actually fucking hates us because we don't talk about training. He, well, she's just trying to learn. She's just like, can you guys please, please talk about the training, please? No, so. I want to talk about the people. The people are way more interesting. Yeah, than the I training. agree. I agree. But, All right. Well, Michael, yeah, thank you for your time. No problem. Yeah, we'll, we will do a part two for sure. And I will yes. block out three hours of my time next time to make sure that I'm yeah, not I'm, rushed. Dude, I'm, I'm chatty. I forgot, to... Michael. Okay. I just thought the voice messages was like, you know, just you being nice. I didn't realize that was just you. <laughs> no, that's, that's why I say like, you know, I, it, that's, that's why at the beginning I said like, you know, so have I talked to you on the phone? Because you would you would know like it's not you know I knew that I'd left you both voice notes, but it was also like wait have I left you like one twenty minute series of voice notes? Yeah. <laughs> left you like ten that occasionally were like an hour, uh, or did I leave you like 
three one time and give you a couple paragraphs or something because yeah i i talk that's all right that's great you're, that's, you're that's the whole point you're, of this great podcast yeah awesome storyteller we get you and bird on the same one oh, oh shit, yes man. we have a whole eight hour session yeah bird and i talk until somebody's phone dies that's <laughs> love that yeah that's that amazing. was literally that was last night wow and you're like oh well i guess someone oh we're done now yeah <laughs> great session everyone <laughs> well all thanks right. gentlemen we thanks, will uh, get this up later today so have a good one all right thanks see you guys bye